Well, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. And for new listeners, welcome, welcome. Right. Yes, Delighted welcome back to, to old listeners and welcome to new listeners. We are the podcast that translates Donald Trump if he needs translation. Sometimes he's playing his nose on your face. Yeah, usually he's playing. Yeah, we have to we have to translate the plain talk. Uh, yeah, we seem to only understand complicated yeah. things. Yeah, now. yeah. We, well, we make plain complicated. <laughs> exactly. That's why you're here. All right. We take a look at the current administration. We address the existential threats to America, some of which we think the president has identified, and of course, many people on the other side think he is the existential threat to America. So we deal with that as well. Joining me today is Byron York. He is a columnist at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. We're going to take a look at his recent columns, highlighting what was actually written in the El Paso Manifesto. And uh, his review of what ha- happened on the president's visits to Dayton and El Paso. Also, maybe a word about uh, the hard choice that never Trumpers face in the 2020 election. So, Claude, uh, I, I want to talk about 2020 Democrats. Okay. Uh, this is something I've said before. But, uh, you know, they're not really moving from their left-wing positions, their left positions. You know, th- this came clear in the last week or two. With people saying, why are all these candidates for president beating up on Obama? Right. And Obamacare. Right. You know, Obamacare's not good enough, and his immigration policies weren't ba- were bad, and he sent mm-hmm. too many people back, you know, home. Yeah. Wasn't it? Wasn't Obamacare not good enough, what, eight years ago? Was it, or did it all of a sudden become? Yeah. <laughs> because none of them would and say anything so, about this. You know, we don't know how the, how the man himself, President Obama, feels about it, but his policy sure took a beating in the last debate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden is defending some of them. Right. But not, you know, he said, well, you don't know. He said to de Blasio, you don't know what I, well, did you agree with the president on, you know, uh, sending out 800,000 people, sending them out of the country? So well, I'm going to tell you what I said to the president. He didn't really stand up and say, yeah, I'm with him all the way. Right. Right. He's sort of standing for some private health care, at least for a while. But uh, on the other things, you know, welfare benefits for illegals, uh, it's not illegal to enter the country without approval. The health care issue, I mean, he's, he's moved to the left. And so, you know, that's where they are. And it, it, I, I'm just struck by the number of liberal columnists, never Trumpers, who, an uh, additional liberal columnists, lib- but never Trumpers, Republicans who don't like Trump at all, saying, man, you're not giving me a good alternative. Because a lot of these people are fairly conservative. They don't like Trump, but they can't go with the Dems because they're so far over there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, a, a second thought, which is, you know, the media, since we don't trust the media now, since we've all learned this. Yeah, how can you? Are they just trying to create uh, a competition where there isn't any? I mean, uh, you know, Biden takes all these hits as a bad first debate, drops a few points, and then boom, he's back up where he was. In fact, a little ahead of where he was. Mm-hmm. Is he the guy? I mean, I, I it could be. I said early on, I didn't think so. I just thought he was weak, a weak candidate, that he'd get punched out and pushed around by these people. And you know what? I'm right. He is a weak candidate. Mm-hmm. He is getting punched around by the uh, other 2020 candidates. Kamala Harris in the first debate, the last debate, everybody was up there beating up on him. But... Seems to be Teflon. He seems to be holding his numbers. I wonder if part of his strategy is not to fight back, like to not, you know, because they're coming at him much harder than he's counterpunching. Yeah, he's counter-punching yeah, yeah, I mean, and and so I wonder if that's part of his whole strategy, kind of to, you know, if I'm if I am, you know, just the if I'm the default Democrat candidate, that is pretty much my race to win. Then why don't I just cruise to victory? Let them, you know, come at me. I'll try to stay above it all and, and save everything for the general. 
because they are saying to him, and this is the pounding because he's a front runner. They're saying you're not a progressive. You're not a progressive. And maybe he, maybe he's not. And he knows he's not. Well, but he wants to pass as a progressive. Okay. I mean, that's why he's he's shifting his ground. Yeah, I'm for that. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't for that crime bill. No, that was another time. And, you know, he's kind of disowning who he was. He's in this odd situation of saying, vote for me because I'm the guy with experience, but you can discount the experience because I'm a different kind. Of <laughs> right. I right. St- I still Had a lot like, of experience, but don't hold that against me or for me. <laughs> and it was a liberal columnist who said uh, he's not as good as he was when he was in his prime, and in his prime he wasn't very good. Yeah, well, that's so. the other thing about running from a lot of the Obama policies was that I'm not sure if anyone else benefited more from being attached to President Obama than Joe Biden. I mean, right. you know what I mean? I think, you know, um, in in, in uh, the eyes of a lot of Obama lovers, the, the Democrat voters, you know, Biden is, you know, he's right under him. I mean, there were people who were hoping that he'd jump in the race, and yeah, he's benefited a lot from being attached to President Obama. Amazing to me is the black vote, the Democratic Party, how mm-hmm. attached black Democrats are to Biden. Oh, 100%. Yep. Uh, and zero for Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. Not so great for Kamala Harris, who's right. black. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much for Booker, uh, Cory Booker, who's black. But Biden, you know, yeah. South Carolina, yeah. yep. you know. And um, I, I do think it is going to narrow. Uh, and here's my only question about what I just said. My audience is used to this. I say it, you know. That was my position before I changed it. I sound sound like, yeah, John Kerry. That is that he's the front runner and he'll remain the front runner and he'll he'll be the guy. I think it's going to come down to Warren versus Biden. I was saying Sanders early on, but I think he's being replaced by a, a somewhat younger, not much younger, but somewhat younger, more vigorous model in Elizabeth Warren, and she's the she she's, moves younger. I mean, she she's, moves younger. Yeah. Good, good expression, good way to do it. Yeah. Um, but when you add up her, see, uh, Biden's like thirty-two, Warren's twenty-one, Harris twelve, Sanders fourteen. When you add up those three, it comes to fifty-five or sixty, mm-hmm. and by and Biden's at thirty. But if you add up all the progressive support. Just Warren Sanders and Harris, it's like fifty. Oh wow! Yeah. So, does that mean the Democrat brain is on the progressive side and it's just divided, or or does it mean you know okay we'll live with Biden? I don't know. You have a guess? No, I I don't know. I will mean, he be the nominee? I think, do you I think? think when it, I, th- I think he will be, but it'll be close. But I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down when you get to your final two, final three, who does the majority think can beat President Trump? And I think that's who they'll go with, even if that means, okay, we really want, you know, uh, 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 Warren, but we don't think she stands a chance on a general stage with Trump, and so they'll go with Biden. I I think that's ultimately what's going to be the deciding factor with most Democrat voters. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? Who has the best shot to win? I think so. Today. I think I may change my vote to Biden, too. I mean, I'm not going to vote for him, but... (laughs) But uh, my prediction, yeah, I don't know. I may change too, but we'll mm-hmm. see. We'll see. I want to see how that sorts out on the left brain, the left side of that. But I will say, I wouldn't sleep too much on Kamala Harris, though. She's still, you know, I think she's. I don't know. She she's not catching on. She seems to me she should catch on. Mm-hmm. Doesn't she? Mm-hmm. See yeah, that with you? yeah. No, she's very talented, uh, smart. Uh, she's good on a stage. Good, she's good on stage. Good, on the good stage. humored. Mm-hmm. Sometimes she laughs, which is nice. Uh, she has a kind of authenticity to her. 
that I think Warren has, and Bernie certainly has. But gosh, I know sir, Bernie's getting to be a little bit of the, the grandfather in the attic. You know? <laughs> right. Go up there with your stuffed bird collection. You know? right. I mean, you know, I have nothing to say about that. Nothing to say about that. Okay, <laughs> we'll leave it there. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Well, let's now welcome Byron, your columnist at the Washington Examiner and Fox News contributor. Byron, welcome back to the show. How you doing? Doing fine. So, love the way you get behind the story, under the story. I want to talk about the manifesto, but I want to, the manifesto written by the El Paso murderer. But I want to talk first about the visits. Uh, A lot of discussion uh, about the visits, the president's visit to Dayton and then to El Paso. Um, Anticipation, concern, worry, People, some people telling him not to go, other people saying he should go. What was the effect of it, you think? Well, it's it's a thing that presidents are expected to do. Uh, Clearly, if you judge by news coverage, it didn't go very well. But, of course, if you judge by news coverage, almost everything Trump does is is a disaster or terrible or treason or racism or something. it was clear that he did have some good interactions uh, with uh, either first responders uh, or victims in uh, Dayton and El Paso, but again, there there was a there was substantial resistance, uh, uh, opposition to his coming, especially in El Paso. If you look at El Paso, it, it voted you know close to seventy percent for for Hillary Clinton. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump in El Paso. And then combine that with with this wall-to-wall news coverage um, blaming Trump for the shooting, saying that the president had inspired the killer in El Paso. And and it wasn't a great um, uh, context for a presidential visit. I also thought it was a little little soon. I mean, he came – the the shootings were on Saturday, and he came on uh, Wednesday, and the shooting was early Sunday morning in in Dayton, and he came on Wednesday. now, I will say, this caused me to go back to 2011 and look at um, Obama's visit to Tucson. If you remember, uh, there had been a shooting in uh, in Tucson, and several people were killed, and Representative Gabriela Giffords, the uh, Democrat from the Tucson area, was uh, grievously wounded. She She survived. But was terribly wounded, and um, Obama goes to Tucson and delivers a speech. And what's kind of interesting is, uh, in retrospect, is after the shooting, there's an immediate, um, uh, immediate impulse to blame Republicans. Now Donald Trump wasn't on the scene, so they couldn't blame Donald Trump. So they blamed Sarah Palin, and there was like four days of blame. Thing with the target, right? Wasn't the target or the bullseye or something? Yes, she had, she had, um, she had, uh, I guess, passed on some sort of political map where the districts that uh, Republicans wanted to win were in crosshairs or something like that. Right, so right. the idea was this had inspired the killer, and it was an incitement to violence, and it was uh, uh, Palin's fault. I mean, it was just going on and on. So. Lest uh, people think that uh, they just do this for Trump, they did it for Palin uh, before. Now, what, what was interesting is, I have to say, I think I, I did kind of a similar thing back then. Is I looked into the motivations of Jared Loeffner, who was the killer, and he was just absolutely 
insane. He was voices in your head, insane. And he had been deeply motivated by a movie called Zeitgeist, which I watched, which was just utter insanity. And so, so he was really, really a deeply, deeply mentally ill person. And there was absolutely no way you could get any political agenda uh, from uh, his, whatever he had said or written or, or, or his motivations. There, just, there was just no political motive. Just a moment for a compliment, because, again, this is what I mean. You not only get under the story, into the motivation and background of this guy, you get in under the story of the story. That is, this guy saw a movie, and you watched the movie. I bet there weren't three people. I did in, watch the movie, and I would know. not recommend it. Yeah, no, but I mean, but good for you. That's the thorough work that, yeah. that we're used to yeah, you doing. Well, and when you watch it, you you, you just realize this, this is this is nuts. And um, so, nevertheless, there was this widespread media and Democratic blaming of Palin and Republicans for this. At the same time, we're having a, a gun control debate. I mean, it's exactly what's going on now without Trump. Um, and but it becomes clear after a little while that Jared Loeffner's Motives were not political. So Obama goes to um, to do, to bring people together in Tucson, and he delivers a speech, and everybody just says it's a wonderful, wonderful speech. Everybody left and right says it's a great speech because he did say that political rhetoric did not cause the violence. But after saying that it didn't cause the violence, he spent the rest of his time calling for a calming down of political rhetoric. Because at this time, that was a debate that Democrats wanted to have, and they wanted to have it because they thought they could win it, and they wanted to um, to go after Palin, Rush Limbaugh, Michelle Bachman, uh, other people who were, were voices uh, at the time. So Obama delivered a thoroughly politicized speech under the guise of bringing people together um, and and basically delivered on the democratic goal uh, of the time, which was to you know blame overheated political rhetoric. And by that, that was shorthand for saying Sarah Palin and Rush Limbaugh. So here's the deal. Presidents have gone and uh, sort of done a consoler-in-chief role. It's been often remarked. Obama did it not only in um, uh, Tucson, he did it in Charleston after the the racially motivated killing uh, there that was clearly racially motivated. There's no doubt about that. Uh, uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton did it after um, Oklahoma City, which I think was 1995. And um, George Bush made various you know, speeches after September 11th. And so there's this idea, you know, the president is consoler in chief. And to the degree that's a real presidential job, Trump is bad at it. He just doesn't know how to do it. He didn't give a speech either, did he? In Dayton no, he did up. not. As a matter of fact, he, he, he did almost nothing in public. He, he got off the plane and, and got in the car and went to a private meeting and then left. Um, but, you know, Trump is just not good at it. And he had delivered remarks at the White House a couple of days earlier about the um, about the shootings, and he said all the right things. He, he can, Of course, he condemned the shootings, and then he condemned white supremacy, mm-hmm. 
And uh, he said exactly what his critics wanted him to say. And then when he said it, the critics said, well, he didn't mean it. And um, but so then on Wednesday, he, he makes what I think was probably an unnecessary trip to uh, uh, Dayton and Tucson, excuse me, Dayton and El Paso. And uh, it just, you know, he's it's just not his thing. He's not terrifically good uh, at doing this whole consoler in chief thing. He's there are many other things he's good at, but this is just not one of them. You know, I am. Um couple things. Uh, I was asked a couple times before when it was announced he was going, oh, it was a good idea. I said, yes, uh, on, on these grounds. And I, of course, I, I wasn't thinking that clearly enough that he wouldn't be giving a public presentation. But I said, look, he goes to West Virginia and he goes to Ohio uh, to these rallies. And, you know, he's adored. So now he's going to two places where, you know, when he gets there, he's not going to be adored by everyone. There's some obvious real disagreements and criticisms. Good for him. I was thinking of it in terms of a public presentation, but there wasn't a public presentation. But I think the point's the same. I give him some points, Byron, for going there, knowing, you know, that he's not going to an entirely receptive audience. And people accuse Trump of always going to just a receptive audience. Is that a fair point? That's a reasonable point to make. And that, you know, he could have made um, more public remarks. I mean, he could at least have have come out and uh, not given a speech, but come out and made some remarks upon arriving at the airport, for example. Sure. Um, and said something to that fact is, you know, I... I know these are places where there are many people who did not, you know, support me for president. But, uh, you know, this is a time where we're, uh, uh, you know, we're all appalled at what has taken place here and want to offer all the support that we can for people here in El Paso or people here in Dayton. So, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I, I stand by my point that he's just not particularly good at this no he's not but but there's some there's some dignity and some um decency and rightness about him going and not making noise and quietly visiting the sick and the injured i mean you're you're absolutely right about that but then of course i mean the media coverage was terrible of course because he went you know he he counterpunched because he always does um, against um, yeah. Yeah. it was Sherrod Brown and I'm sorry I've forgotten the name of the mayor of um, right. Dayton. Right. But anyway, he took out after him and said they were politicking, which they were. Whaley, I think. Um, yeah. And you know, so much criticism of Trump is for his counterpunching, and the the argue, the tacit argument is Trump shouldn't hit back. You know, people people should hit him, and but he shouldn't hit them back because he he does he just never fails to hit people back, which is one of the reasons he's president now. He conducted a campaign that way, too. Um, so, you know, whatever. I don't think this is a serious, as any sort of serious long-term damage. To illustrate your point, I watched CNN yesterday, and what they emphasized was when he, I think, came out and was thanking the uh, first responders. I don't know if you saw this. Some guy said, yeah, I was there. I was there at your rally. And he said, "Yeah, oh yeah, we had a great rally. We had thousands of people, and Beto O'Rourke just just had a had a few." 
And the way that was played was President Trump came to visit El Paso and give comfort. Instead, he talked all about himself. Well, this was a sidelight. This was small talk. This was making conversation with the first responder. Um, but that's that's the lengths to which to which the media will go. Look, I mean, uh, the, the coverage of him is just outrageously yeah. unfair um, by being incomplete. Here's my question, then, and, and I'll, then I'll stop him and let you go because you've got more insight on this than I do. If this, if this is where we are and the coverage is where it is, and we hear what it is that these 2020 candidates are saying, racist, white supremacist comparisons to the Third Reich, we're 15 months out. Where does this go from here? <laughs> you know, it's, it's Is there another gone. circle of hell? Of, the, uh, uh, you've heard of the famous reductio ad Hitlerum. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's usually thought that when you're having some argument that it ultimately, if it goes on long enough, it will get to Hitler. <laughs> and that's kind of the kind of that's kind of the ultimate dead end of the argument. You know, you're comparing something that happened to Nazis or the Holocaust or something, which is sort of by definition the world's worst human. So, um, the, your question is: is if if we've gotten to Hitler now, you know, a year and several months before the election, where in the world are we going to be? And the answer is, I I don't know. Um, no. But I, I think if if I, if I'm if I've been noticing all this accurately, I mean, the, basically the the press's the media's response to Trump is to call him something, and then when that doesn't when he doesn't just come out and say, you know, you're right, I resign, they just do it louder, and you know they're about the they've they've turned up the volume for about the 500th time. But I think they'll just keep doing it, and they'll just keep saying it louder. They're very, they're very proud of them themselves, you know, saying this is racist. They're not saying it was it was racially tinged or racially charged. They're just saying this is racist. So they're calling the president uh, a racist, and they're pretty proud of them being being uh, being so uh, frank and open. Um, so I think that'll just continue, and they'll just do it more loudly until there's an election. I want to segue from what you said just a bit earlier to, you know, this this uh, calling him a white supremacist and racist, calling the president. And whether this is going to sound like, you know, nails on the chalkboard after a while or just get hollow, just not mean anything. You keep repeating it. And the thing racism, white supremacist loses its meaning. But also, does it alienate uh, people in the middle. I mean, even people who don't like Trump. You wrote a great column about what do the never Trumpers do. People who don't like Trump are looking at the Democrats and saying, "You know, my gosh, you know, this isn't so good either." Um, liberals are writing columns about, you know, uh, gee, I hate Trump, but the, the Democrats are going off the left cliff here. Um, and and isn't this media coverage sort of a part of the same thing? If if you keep banging this guy with this, people are going to say that's extreme. I agree with what you say about losing its meaning. And I do think that screaming that Trump is racist over and over and over and over, uh, especially when, you know, the evidence, you know, the evidence is the kind of evidence that one side looks at and says, that's absolute proof he's a racist. And the other side looks at it and says, no, it's not. And so it, that, nobody's getting convinced of anything in this in this argument, no minds are being changed, and I and I do think for the people who support Trump, um, 
it loses all meaning. So guess what? CNN is screaming about Trump today, and you think, well, what is new? So uh, I do think the loss of meaning is an issue. And you, and you raised a second point. As far as the never-Trumpers are concerned, and we have to remember this is a very, very small group of people, a very small group of people. Um, here again, there's just no surprise. I mean, if, you know, Jennifer Rubin writes a, a column denouncing Donald Trump, I mean, it is the classic, um, you know, dog bites man story. It's not news. It happens every day. And so you just don't, you don't even notice it. Right. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that's more of what I was saying about these accusations kind of, uh, lose their meaning. One other thing here, this is serious, which is whether this chorus, this daily, daily chorus, and this may be its ultimate goal, is causes some voters to worry about Trump or or um, believe the worst about him simply because they just heard so much noise about him. Yeah. If you remember, this is, this is an old example, but after the Republican Revolution of 1994, Newt Gingrich comes in to power as the Speaker of the House in Washington, and there's an enormous press reaction against him. He's terrible. Um, there was a famous Time magazine cover back when Time magazine mattered. Um, and it was something like how the Grinch stole Christmas. So Newt Gingrich was the villain here. And his name, Gingrich and Grinch, was kind of the yeah, same. <laughs> and there was what followed was this long campaign to suggest, to accuse Gingrich of misusing his office, of uh, profiting from a book contract based on his newfound fame, and to suggest that he had created a college course, uh, which was a nonprofit exercise, but he'd done it for the purpose of building political support. And it was just all a bunch of stuff that added up to nothing. But it was repeated over and over and over and over again. And the idea was to to have the average voter out there who may know very little about Newt Gingrich say, yeah, I, I know he's the, he's the head of the Republicans and he's done something wrong. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but he's done something wrong. And so that's that's the idea is you just throw so much at somebody that uh, the average sort of voter you might find in a focus group in Columbus, Ohio, doesn't know exactly what the accusations are, hasn't looked into them in the slightest. Knows they've done something wrong. Yeah, and so yeah. certainly, you know, you can magnify that by a million with uh, with Trump. That was certainly the the goal of the entire, um, you know, the set of Trump Russia uh, uh, accusations. You know, and and also in terms of racism, it's you know maybe you're not sort of convinced, or maybe you haven't looked into everything the president has said and ask yourself now is that racist or not no, that's a good point you, know, you just think well you know guys they keep saying he's he's i just keep hearing he's a racist he's a racist so the, so there might be method to this madness that is repeat the thing a million times and it yeah. becomes conventional wisdom uh, you know i think the charlottesville thing is a bad rap i know i mean i know he kind of fumbled well, his know, i thought i haven't um, I didn't delve into that for quite a long time. I don't think I've ever written anything about that, that Charlottesville 
news conference. You should. I think it was in Trump Tower a few days afterwards. Um, but it is, you know, when you read the transcript today, and I read it a couple of days ago, um, when you read the transcript today, it's pretty clear that Trump was dividing the people in the, uh, the the actors in Charlottesville into several groups. There was the the uh, the white supremacists, the white nationalists. There was the uh, Antifa people, um, and then there were the uh, people who just wanted to uh, protest the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue. Mm-hmm. And then there were the people on the other side of the removal. So there were like four groups. Uh, two sides, four groups, one bad on either side. The bad ones being, yeah. of course, the white nationalists and the Antifa. And so if you look through uh, the transcript, it's just classic sort of Trumpian stream of consciousness. It becomes pretty clear that he's saying there's this, there was this bad group of white nationalists and they should be condemned up and down. And then there was these other people who were just there to protest the removal of the statue. And I think that had been the day earlier. Oh, that's exactly right. But it's the same thing. Yeah, and so right. The chronology of it wasn't quite, quite right, which is another Trump, Trumpian sort of thing. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that when he said there were very fine people on both sides, um, that he was, you know, as far as the fine people, he was referring to those people who opposed the... Um, the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue. Now, this continues to resonate in our politics. If you remember, um, Joe Biden, uh, with his campaign uh, announcement video, the way he presented his candidacy for the first time to the American people, it was all about Charlottesville. The whole thing still showing that Trump saying that, that there were very fine people on both sides. Uh, showed there's something deeply, deeply wrong in America that must be corrected by the defeat of Donald Trump at the hands of, of Joe Biden. And when Biden was at the Iowa State Fair, uh, an editor at Breitbart, Joel Pollack, asked him about the Charlottesville remark and basically saying, you know, wasn't Trump referring to other people as very fine people, and not to neo-Nazis. And uh, Biden said, absolutely not, stood his ground completely. Uh, so this this is going to continue to resonate. And believe me, if Biden receives the Democratic nomination, he will mention in his acceptance speech that Trump referred to neo-Nazis as very fine people. Yeah. So th- these things become reality. The, the legend has been printed and uh, and that's just the way it is. Right. I guess my point is if you repeat a thing a million times, it becomes conventional wisdom, particularly for people who don't probe, probe into it, you know? But, yeah, especially yeah. when you have people in positions of authority, like the former vice president saying. Right. So if the media keeps hitting this, we may think it's hollow and repetitious and boring and stupid and odd Hitlerium, but uh, it sinks in. It, be, it gets into the uh, environment. It becomes part of the universe. Yeah, yep. absolutely. All right. Byron, thank you very much. Uh, We're going to put both your columns up about the manifesto and about the Never Trumpers. And we thank you very, very much. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. 
can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. We get emails, don't we, Paul? Oh, yeah, we get tons of emails. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and your friends. We'll catch up next week. Bye.